Hello and welcome to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown. I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs and head of inspiration at Scribehound. My co-host's name is Chris Horn, founder and CEO of both Guns on Pegs and Scribehound. Afternoon, Chris. Afternoon, George. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. It's been a busy couple of weeks. It has. We've had that lovely moment where, sorry, I'm not seeing you. I've been out shooting a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so most notably, we were shooting together. We were. We were. Uh, and we had our podcast shoot day, which got a fair bit of airing uh, after about half an hour of certain pods in the past. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and it filled up with all the members of the Most Noble Order of the Garters. It was awesome fun, wasn't it? It was such a great day. I don't want to talk too much about it now because I think what we'll do is try and do an episode with Ben, who very kindly hosted us, and Jake, who, without whom it wouldn't have happened. So I think we'll try and do an episode with them and we'll do a proper kind of post-match analysis on it. Um, so we'll, we'll just tease That's very that, good of I you. Think. I think we'll tease it. Yeah, I thought you were going to um, use the opportunity to tell everyone about your high bird in the first, first drive and just sort of wang on about that. I thought I'd let Jake do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. <laughs> cool. Okay. <laughs> so that was very nice. But yeah, you've you've been on a couple of days. I've had a, a day at home since, since then as well. Can I tell you about something that happened when we were shooting at the weekend? Go. Um, I've never heard of this before, but maybe you have. Um, we've got a drive that currently isn't working terribly well because of the uh, green manure crop that's in the in the field. And we were doing it slightly differently with the beaters coming through this green manure crop. And as the beaters were going through, there was a roe deer bedded down in the facilia. And it got up about two yards in front of a young lad about 10 years old and absolutely flattened him mowed him straight down big big cut on the back of the head off to hospital have you ever heard of something like that happening i mean obviously seen a lot go through but i've always wondered how they haven't hit anyone until now um so yeah, yeah. that is it is it right yeah yeah i mean a bit shaken up i think as you would be but um it's just uh yeah i mean we've got roe deer everywhere they're absolutely everywhere on the farm. I think we probably short, probably saw twenty on the day. So yeah, I like you. I've always wondered how it is that it's not happened more, but it's just yeah. because this one was properly bedded down in the, in the long stuff, and and sat tight and sat tight, and then eventually thought help, and <laughs> just I don't know, um, flattened this poor kid. As long as it hasn't put him off his another ten years of beating before he gets <laughs> to the gun line. Well, we were saying it's probably quite a good war story for when he gets back to school on Monday. Right, our guest today is Managing Director of J.M. Osborne Rural and Sporting. It's a sporting estate management company. Um, he's a qualified charter surveyor and a land agent for over 40 years. Since 1988, he's been involved in setting up and running of several leisure and sporting businesses, including the EJ Churchill Group, which not a lot of people may have known. Um, in 2008, he acquired the William Powell brand uh, and has grown it enormously, uh, along with the sports agency side of the business, to something very well known to many of us. Um, he's a pretty big deal in the grouse world. We'll come on to that in a bit. He's turned around many estates into prolific grouse moors. Um, so please pull over to the side of the road, hop out the car, run around it cheering, and a big warm welcome to Mark Osborne. Thank you very much indeed, Chris. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I'm not sure after that introduction there's much more I can say. So probably I ought to sign off now. <laughs> um, I I forgot about the EJ Churchill bit. That was I, I was a bit 
I was before our time in this world. Guns on Pegs start, started in 2007. I mean, I was obviously around. Uh, I'm not I'm not talking about an age thing. I would say Guns on Pegs was in 2007. So that was about the same time that the, the, the William Powell bit then kicked off. It's all sort of a distant memory now. That's right, yeah. Um, well, Churchill's, uh, I was joint owner with Edward Dashwood and managing director for 18 years from when we started as West Wickham Shooting Ground and then acquired the Churchill brand, I think probably about five years later. Um, yeah, it was 18 very good years, very, very interesting, great um, to be involved in different aspects, the corporate hospitality, the shooting ground, the gun making, although I'm probably very pleased that I'm no longer involved <laughs> in active gun making, um, and uh, sporting agency and everything. Yeah, really good. Very good. Great. Well, I think we're probably quite lucky to, to have got you, Mark. I'd imagine this time of year you're buzzing around the country a fair bit are you not shooting and, and hosting clients and that kind of thing i probably do less shooting than everybody imagines um, <laughs> um i spend a lot of time running around the country sort of working but i i still work um shoot a bit um, um but and rush around a lot probably rather like a duck um there's um a lot of furious activity but not necessarily much progress uh when i'm paddling along well where are you rushing off to next uh, after this, uh, I'm going to actually check uh, a, uh, a customer on guns who's come in to have a sh- uh, shooting, uh, uh, have a gun fit, and then he's looking to buy a gun. So I'm just going to go and catch up with him. And then I'm off to the Cotswolds where um, we're staying tonight in a pub um, and we are shooting tomorrow in the Cotswolds. And this is going to be a very special day because um, it's 50 years ago um, in September, two months ago, I went to Sirencester to the Royal Agricultural College, now the Royal Agricultural University, and as a completely sort of raw f- fresher, met a whole lot of people. And 50 years later, we're still friends, and we're having a shoot day in the Cotswolds together. So this is going to be a fantastic uh, evening tonight, which is why I'm actually uh, drinking coffee now, um, <laughs> and, and hopefully in preparation for a great shoot day tomorrow. Although, given what the weather forecast is for tomorrow, it could be quite an interesting day. It's going to be a bit breezy, isn't it? I think it's going to be very breezy. Um, 50 years of a team going strong. Have you shot together every year? No, we we we, we haven't. We we started. Um, we've shot sort of between us in the sense that you know we've had sort of two or three people constantly shooting together over the years. But we just last year, I thought it was really great that we actually got the sort of core shooting lot together on one day, and then so that was uh, last year, and then we got this year as well. But uh, so it's good. It's really good, and and. Um, it's a, it's a very it's the only day that you can be completely misbehave because you, yeah yeah you know, everybody remembered you as when you were sort of nineteen or twenty years old and constantly misbehaved. <laughs> no, I was going to say, hopefully you can't do anything more embarrassing than what no, you did exactly. when you were nineteen. Absolutely, no chance at all. Um, so so that's it, and, and there are no holds bars, and everybody is incredibly rude, and particularly sort of um, about me because you know I I miss spectacularly and very very regularly and and people just say sorry i, I thought you were a professional shot you, you used to have a shooting ground you you make guns i mean surely you're a better shot than i've just seen <laughs> so i i get the short end of the stick <laughs> that's so cool and that will be a real lovely change to you know 
work-related days. It couldn't be further yeah. from it in a way. No, for, absolutely. No. Uh, but one, of, one of my friends uh, is there who will not be shooting with it now, who blames me still. for. So, he's not a particularly tall chap. And many years ago, I sold him an AYA 25-inch. And he, <laughs> he absolutely convinced himself that the only reason he was such a bad shot is because he had short barrels. And he never stops, even sort of 30 years later, uh, commenting on the fact that actually he would have been a hell of a shot if actually he'd had a proper length of gun. I would have thought with the salesman in you, you would have sold him another one in that period of time, but obviously he got a bit worse too. <laughs> he, sadly, he bought the next one from someone else. He became far too smart. <laughs> Goodness, first round on him. Mm. <laughs> um, well, have a lovely time. So maybe we should do what's that you're drinking and what's that you're drinking later. <laughs> yes, well, good idea. <laughs> right. What I'm drinking now is coffee in preparation because I have no doubt that it's going to be a fairly liquid evening. Uh, what I'll be drinking later um, is I, I'm a really like drinking wine. Um, I um, Science Esther was a big shock to me because I had my kids can't believe it. When I went to Science Esther, I had never drunk a pint of beer in my life. I drank two halves, but never drunk a pint. Wow. And then got to play rugby, and then I had to learn how to drink a pint down in one. <laughs> if you've only ever drunk two halves of beer by the time you were, I think, 20, and, uh, and then you were standing in a line of people doing boat races with pints of beer, that was a complete shock <laughs> to the system. <laughs> learn um, fast. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness, yeah. So, uh, I mean, a pub in the Cotswold, in the Cotswolds, on a sort of, it's got colder, the fire's going to be lit, all your mates there from uni, that is just the perfect sort of session type, you know, get out the local ale at the bar. I'm so jealous. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that's that, that's good. We'll be a really, really nice night. And, and the decent wine, obviously. Um, yeah. Very good. Lovely. What have you got, Chris? Because, so, as you've could tell it's just just after lunch uh and i also have something to do this afternoon not quite as fun as that but i've got a meeting and there's a reason to this one i have a alcohol-free guinness alcohol-free beers for many years have had a bad rep because basically they tasted awful um and it was fully justified in my opinion recently as is pretty hard to avoid the marketing's gone through the roof they've all been up in their game this one if you haven't had it is a real winner the alcohol-free Guinness, in, in my experience, is probably the best of the ones I've tried. And often, and as, as happened on Saturday as well, you get to the end of the day, everyone's sort of chatting after the day. They need to have these more on shoots because at the end of the day, I'm about to get in the car for three hours. That's exactly what I wanted to go with the scenario. Obviously, a cup of tea is nice, but a few others were staying over and it just didn't really fit the vibe. And so this is a big endorsement for the alcohol-free Guinness. If you haven't tried it, go and grab one. So I've got one for the pod for today. So that in a can... Yeah, yeah, it's got the old um, little widget inside. I was going to say well. the most important question is: Has it got a widget? Yeah, it does. Yeah, um, I always, you know, when you're at uni uh, and school, they always talked about widgets in business studies. I'm f I always thought that was exactly what they were, but <laughs> widget was a generic term. <laughs> um, that and the Boddington's widget, they had one as well, didn't they? They did. Yes, very um, good adverts. Yeah. So, how about you, George? Well, I'm very impressed by how abstemious you both are. Um, and I thought one of us had probably better better keep the show on the road. So although <laughs> it is early in the day, I have got an alcoholic drink. And um, this weekend we were shooting at home, as I've already said, and I was joined by two of my colleagues, Frank and Digby. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, 
Digby likes to brew his own, well, he calls it brandy. I think we should probably call it moonshine. Um, <laughs> and uh, he brought me, very kindly brought me a, a bottle of his aged brandy. Uh, but he also brought a bottle of something that I've never had before, which was his own homemade damson brandy, which I have to say is a revelation. It is absolutely fantastic. It's got no sugar in it at all. It's um, it's basically damson juice and brandy. But my God, it's beautifully dry and 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 not got that that sort of slightly cloying thing that you can sometimes get with uh, with slow gins and and such like. And as a shoot day tipple, it's absolutely brilliant. So delicious. So I've got a very small amount of that. Do you realise how big his head's going to be next well, after he hears this and we turn up for a team meeting? Well, be, between you and me, I reckon it was probably Mrs. Digby who made it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that sounds really good. Yeah, Dams it is seriously good. Um, just to give him any more credit, was this his idea or had he stolen this from someone else? I, I haven't, haven't found out. Okay. Let's assume it wasn't. <laughs> is that the safer option <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i'm having i'm having a, a very very little snifter of that just to stir the creative juices when i've got an article to write this afternoon <laughs> fair enough <laughs> <laughs> um dams and brandy has this come across your radar before mark no never um yeah it sounds interesting yeah so it's so it's, it's made from the brandy is made from the cider that digby makes and he's got a little still um, so if you hear of an explosion in Cornwall at some point in the next few years, there's a reasonable chance that it's Digby's house going up. <laughs> he could make Calvados then. Well, that's the thing. So sometimes he calls his side a Calvados if it's gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so he, has, he has had a go at Calvados, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I think we'll move on. Um, so the next segment, Mark, is a segment that we call Whose Bird Is It Anyway? And uh, it's where we ask our listeners to write in with their shooting quandaries and queries and dilemmas, and we do our level best to help them. We keep our correspondence anonymous to protect the guilty. And in this case, I have decided to name our correspondent Lawrence, who has written, Dear George and Chris, I have an urgent shooting query. I'm a big game shooting and conservation advocate, but sadly, I'm going to have to give this up for the next few years as I've just accepted a job in Saudi Arabia. Sadly, Saudi isn't exactly hot on shooting, with shotguns being banned for the purposes of hunting as far as I can tell. Accepting a job in the Middle East wasn't really on my or my partner's five-year plan, but here we are and our move is fast approaching. I'd like to get a few different days in before I go, which should be quite easy with all that's on offer on guns or pegs. However, here's the rub. We've had to move our wedding up by a year and have miraculously managed to organise a wedding and farewell party within two, two months. This means I'm basically broke, as weddings seem to cause money to flow out of your bank account faster than Niagara Falls. So what would you suggest I do on a shoestring budget as my last shooting expedition before marriage and my shooting hiatus? For reference, I live in the Peak District and will be moving in the new year. <laughs> This sounds like, can you read out my beg for someone to invite me to a shoot day just before my wedding and before I go to Saudi Arabia? <laughs> um, Mark, do you want to have a go first at answering this quite tricky quandary? Very tricky. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the timescale is not going to help either, is it? Um, no. <laughs> you know, so he's got very short notice and he hasn't got much money, um, <laughs> which is not two good combinations. Um, I suppose what he really wants to find is some good rough shooting where you can get you, you, you get far more bangs for your bucks in every respect. So what would I do? I think I would concentrate on that. Where can I go to which gives us gives me good value for money with rough shooting. Um, the problem tends to be with those is that because you haven't got big teams of guns, finding vacancies, single gun opportunities is really, really hard, isn't it? On that, on that sort of stuff, it's so hard because it's in such demand, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's... I mean, the easy one is whatever his budget is, is just to, you know, take a gun on a day, you know, a, a driven day, probably a, a relatively modest, if not very modest, driven day. But he's only going to get probably a day's worth of sport. Whereas if he mm. goes to something significantly cheaper, he could get several days for the same amount of money. But finding it not going to be easy at all. Maybe a bit of woodcock shooting, possibly mm. down in Wales or something. Um, yeah. there's, there's some quite good opportunities for um, rough shooting up in the Scottish borders. Yeah. Um, that's another possibility. Hmm. Challenging, I think. I, I like the wood where you were going with the woodcock. There's yeah. also, you probably need to find a few mates for those, but there's also yeah. like a few sort of, especially on the edges of Scotland all around it, yeah. like the, the snipe yeah. type setups, a bit of wildfowling, chucked yep. in yeah i yep. get on the wild fouling i think but also i think that we can come at this from another angle which is the budget issue um as in just sort it out well, <laughs> try to cut down the wedding yeah well exactly. try to make it a very small wedding and then you could have a much bigger budget <laughs> there is that but also um you know they're moving to saudi uh so presumably they're not asking for lots of furniture and kitchen appliances on their wedding list no. i would just say <laughs> You know, we'll have the we'll have the I, 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 I we'll have the fish where you're slice. coming from. <laughs> we'll have the fish slice, but um, forget about the toaster and uh, put that money <laughs> to, towards my shooting budget, please. Yes. Do, do you see his wife being similarly enamoured by the concept of the shared <laughs> wedding present? And she's at home, and and he's off. She doesn't get the toaster, but instead he has some money for shooting. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, good. I like your idea, George. I mean, it's kind of one of those you don't ask, you don't get, isn't it? But exactly. I have a feeling you won't get. Uh, <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> the, yeah. the only other thing is um, he could sort of borrow for, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess that you don't take a jog in Saudi Arabia, just like all footballers think, unless the mm. pay is a little bit better than over here. Uh, well, I, that's probably like, tax free, isn't it? So I, I'd sort of borrow forward slightly on this one and go out with a bang because he's not going to get... I'd shoot all of next season's shooting and the year after before he goes and and just use money that he, he probably has in savings and don't worry about that. Uh, I, yeah, it's tricky, well, isn't and, it? And then, of course, you know, if he is going to be flush with cash with his new highly paid job in Saudi, there must be some opportunities in that part of the world. We know there are in North Africa you know there's morocco for example so what could he be doing in saudi or nearby so i didn't know saudis are not they, they ban shotguns for the purposes of hunting is this anyone got any knowledge on this no i'm keen on their hawking and their falconry um, yeah not uh, at all knowledgeable about what happens with shotguns or rifles 
Well, I think it's definitely worth exploring what the options might be in that neck of the woods. Most of the falconry that happens out there has got some sort of English link I've seen. Whenever I've seen these these Middle Eastern sort of hawking teams or falconry teams, there's always some sort of English trainer knocking along alongside them. So there, there's probably some ins he's got there uh, to try and get out there when he does that. Um, yeah, tricky. I'd, uh, he's got a serious amount of negotiation to do, not only on the shooting front for the price, but with his future <laughs> wife. Um, and then, yeah, good luck. Not sure. He's left us with a tough one there. Of course. I mean, if you are near the Peak District and you just feel sorry for Lawrence here, um, just send a message, pod at gunsonpegs.com. We'll forward it on. Or George <laughs> will take it and then just tell him that Lawrence, to turn up saying his name's Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, also, if anybody happens to know any good places to stay in the Peak District, do let me know. Oh, yeah? Where are you going? I don't know yet. <laughs> are you no. going shooting with Lawrence as well? <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, I think wild, wildfowling's got to be the thing, hasn't it? Yeah, I was just wondering, I don't know how oversubscribed wildfowling clubs are, but if you can get in there, you can get out on the foreshore every so often. I mean, he's in the Peak District. He couldn't be much further from the coast. Uh, yeah, the closest would be sort of um, Kings Lynn, the Fens, Hole Beach, that sort of uh, area. Uh, many years ago, I was a member of a wildfowling club there. And for my sins, because it was before I drove, um, and sh- just showing how long ago it was, I used to take my gun on the train um, and my dad's dog and then <laughs> catch the train to Kings Lynn from Sheffield. Goodness. And, and then be picked up and go wildfowling. A bit more accepted uh, then than it is now. You can't even take your guns on the... No. Most train companies ban them now. Yes, I, I don't imagine. I mean, mine was literally in a gunsling, so it looked like a gun. Yeah. You can't imagine wandering around on Sheffield Station <laughs> catching the train to go to King's Lynn and doing that. <laughs> so the, the, the place I'm going to on Monday, uh, the last... Come on, one tell everyone last, where. It's, oh, it's, one, it's a hell of an opportunity. I've got a very generous friend. Uh, <clears throat> I won't name the name of the moor because you know, you probably know him well, Mark. Uh, but he's invited me for a mixed species walked up day, which I've done once before. And it's one of these mixed species day, which smashes most other mixed species days into a cocked hat uh, with a bit of absolutely everything on a, on a lovely, lovely moor and in a, in a, in a, in a lodge he's just completely gutted and redone. Uh, which narrows it down for a few. See your cogs wearing, trying to work out where this is. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, it's just one of those days, but it's, it's in Durham. Uh, and I got the train back with my gun over my shoulder in the slip and a bin bag of grouse once back to London because <laughs> uh, I wanted to take them back. I literally couldn't do it any other way. And I put them in the little locker area. And obviously they got a little bit warm by the time they got back. So I was... <laughs> I got back. I saved them. They were okay. Uh, well, they were fine. I quickly got back with the with the breasts out of all of them as quickly as I possibly could to get them in the fridge, uh, and uh, and saved it. So that was the last time. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, so rather different. I remember many many years ago when I left Science Hester, I then went travelling in South America after I qualified, and uh, sort of was obviously had fairly sheltered upbringing. I decided to see sort of uh, in Bolivia three women come into the into the carriage um with a with a crate take put the hand in the crate take out the chicken 
wring the chicken's neck, pluck the chicken, and then another one had a, a sort of little three-legged stool, and a, and, a, and then they got a fire going in the carriage, and they cooked sort of cock-a-van, but obviously Bolivian version of cock-a-van <laughs> in front of me. And and actually then, and they were peeling sort of carrots or vegetables, and then actually offered me lunch. Amazing. <laughs> Just, it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> Goodness. I should have gone further. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know if we've got any brilliant solutions, but I think that your wildfowling is where I'd begin and, and the wedding list. Um, so I hope that helps, Lawrence. Oh, I've got one other. Oh, go on. You know, um, some people really frown upon this, but there's a few pigeon operators who have access to huge amounts of land, carefully manage it, like where, you know, monitor where the numbers are and where they need culling and whatnot. And they offer fixed price uh guaranteed shots number of shots days um there's a couple on guns on pegs they are seriously pricey when it comes to what people expect to pay for pigeon shooting but you get a serious amount with it uh you're on for a proper cull day that's something that he could extend to if he's looking for bang for bangs for bucks as it were very good idea good normally we do uh, an unpopular opinion now but in the last couple of episodes or so we've had quite a lot of controversial conversations and i thought that i might just try and lighten the mood a bit in this episode so instead of uh, an unpopular opinion we are returning to uh, a favorite of mine which is the forgotten drives segment this one comes from an american couple who george has called franklin and barbara are they, is that actually their names no and i'm hoping you're going to do this in an american accent george don't don't <laughs> even go there <laughs> God. Oh, dearie me. No, I, I can't even try. It'll be so bad. I don't even know where to start. It's going to come out Welsh or Indian, but anyway. Um, so I won't. Uh, dear Chris and George, first, I have to say I thoroughly enjoy the podcast. Always informative and entertaining. Thank you very much. I thought I'd share two forgotten drives. My wife and I organise driven shooting parties, mainly for Americans, in Wales, England, Scotland, Spain and Morocco. The first is the Longwood Drive at the Hay Shoot in Newnham on Seven. The setting is spectacular with broad views across the Severn Estuary. There is a spot there that is one of my favourite places on the planet, really. The Longwood Drive was always the last of the day at the Hay, and the Hay was usually the last estate we visited after a week of shooting at different estates. So a bittersweet spot, but an amazing drive. The guns were strung in a descending line down a steep gully that parallels a ridgeline of mature trees. Birds were driven from game crops at the top of the ridge and over the trees. Brilliant birds they were. One of my favourite memories is looking down the line and seeing my son Graham, then aged 11, taking down a seriously respectable hen pheasant with enviable style. It must have looked like a sparrow to him. He was so excited that he went over, hill, over the hill after the drive and picked the bird himself and insisted that we get it stuffed. The hen now lives on his bookshelf in his room. Sadly, the hay shoot is closed for now. It had just come under new management the season before the pandemic, but didn't survive. Hopefully someone revives the programme because it was a really nice shoot filled with fond memories. The second is the cliff drive at the Riverside shoot in Sedbury Park near Chepstow, also overlooking the Severn. The cliff drive was similarly re reserved for the end of the day if the conditions were right. Guns lined along the foreshore along the river and birds were driven over tall trees at the top of a cliff face. The pheasant and partridge would crest the treetops and immediately peel left or right when they saw the river. So it was an entire drive filled mainly with high-crossing birds. Extremely challenging and wonderful fun. Sadly, Riverside also did not come out of the pandemic intact, which is a real shame. 
extremely well run by a team that have become good friends with since. Luckily, we've stayed in touch and get to catch up from time to time, but I do miss that shoot. It's also the place where I discovered that I had put petrol in my diesel engine rental truck, but that's a different story. (laughs) (laughs) And an expensive one, I expect. Yes, it's a very two very nicely written descriptions there, I think. Lovely. I didn't know the hay had closed. Um, That's sad, isn't it? You forget quite a few shoots didn't make it through the pandemic. Yes. But let's focus on the positives. There's very happy (laughs) memories associated with these two drives, and I like hearing about them. Lovely. And the fact that his, you know, I think for the the first one at the hay, kind of his son shooting that bird on that drive, that's clearly his memory. And I think we can all relate to that in one way or another. Either of these shoots familiar with you, Mark? I know of the hate, but but I don't know the other one at all, no. So Lawrence and Franklin and Barbara and now you, Mark, are all the newest members of the Most Noble Order of the Garters and will very soon be in receipt of the much-coveted, highly desirable Guns on Pegs podcast, Shooting Sock Garters. If you two have got a shooting confession, a quandary or a query, or if you've got an unpopular opinion, or you'd like to tell us about a forgotten drive, and you'd like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. you got a pair of the new garters coming your way, Mark. They, uh, the the shooting sock company who produce our limited edition uh, garters, which n- cannot be purchased elsewhere, have now got lavender instead of lilac or something in them. Ooh. So they've had a real big change. Right. Thank you. That's very <laughs> something to look forward to. I, I'm sorry that I missed the... the um, the sort of controversy ones, I, I must sort of go back to actually hear that. So what was the best or the worst of the controversies that you had? Uh, you would have loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, are you suggesting that at all, I'm at all controversial, Chris? <laughs> I, I, I know that you'd have an opinion on it. That's what I know. Uh, <laughs> um, the uh, George? Um, okay, quickly to rake over the old coals. Um, we have had long conversations about uh best practice and uh self-regulation and uh all that sort of stuff we've had slightly shorter but no less heated conversations about double gunning and stuffing uh and touched on bag sizes whether shoots make money or not was another one well i can't quite remember what else all the fun stuff. Yeah, <laughs> all the fun stuff. God, yeah. but they're um, fun episodes. Some of my some of my favourite episodes. So definitely do go back and have a listen. Um, oh, yeah, they're great. The, the, the theme has been sustainability a little bit. Uh, the the future that we often talk about, um, which I don't know. I go through. I'm sure, like you, Mark, go through sort of weeks of ups and downs. And some some weeks, I feel immensely positive about all the opportunities, and then other weeks, I'm like, oh my god, the burden of it all. Uh, so, to, what, this got, week is one of the positive weeks. Yeah, I think you've got to stay positive. You, you know, one of the sort of disadvantages of getting being quite old. I remember my father. There was a sort of people came over for drinks one Sunday. Uh, and I would probably be about 12 or 13, and by then was mad on shooting. And my dad was talking to other people who shot, who were friends of his, and they're having drinks, and I remember um, them saying, so this would be, I was born in 53, so this would be in the 60s, mid-60s, and I remember my dad saying, well, I don't think we'll be shooting in 10 years' time, certainly not 20 years. And that, you know, we all think... 
then it was absolutely fantastic and they were thinking one of the the main things then was harold wilson and dennis healy or whatever it was and and, mm. and all of the cost and 98 pence in the pound income tax and and that shooting wouldn't survive those costs and and there we are whatever it is 50 years later 60 years later and we're still shooting so i think your positivity is really essential that's a really really important point that because yeah that's to to survive all of those scenarios just shows how resilient the idea of getting out and enjoying yourself and yes really and and i can tell you mark that you are on the same page as some of our listeners who um actually gave us a bit of a ticking off for being too doom and gloom about things on occasions (laughs) (laughs) so people agree with you and and I, i i am inclined to agree as well that you know um I think I think the, the the end of shooting is always ten years off and will continue to be for a very long time, um, <laughs> as long as we all keep doing the right things. As long as it's always ten years in the future, I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, um, but Mark, um, I wanted to ask you off the back of the forgotten drives. I mean, you've been all over the show. Um, there must be some some great drives that you've seen come and go over the years. Yeah, the, the, the phenomenal. I mean, I, the problem is trying to list the number of drives that I would love to revisit or because they've gone or whatever it is. I, I, I go up uh, frequently up by Sterling and I never saw it in its uh, before the dual carriageway was built, but there was a drive across what is now, I think, the A9 and uh, on the, the Sterling estate, as in the SAS family's estate. And apparently when the, the, the dual carriage is being um, cut through the cutting there, and you'll see there's a church up on the right-hand side, um, they they still lined the guns out whilst the earth movers were working. And that was, <laughs> that was apparently, and the Sterling family said, well, you know, we, we've seen much worse than that in our experiences. Therefore, we're going to carry on and, and make the most of it. And I drive up that road and I look at it and think it must have been an absolutely fantastic drive. <laughs> so that must have been very sad to to have lost. They had one year where major construction came in and made their drive even even better than it Ooh. was before. <laughs> yes, even better. If you put up with the yellow diggers and things, it would be absolutely fine. Um, it, it, it reminds yeah. me of, of, of something you've definitely thought about because you drive along it all the time. The old cutoff on the M40, or is it the A40? Uh, Stoker Church. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> where everyone just goes, the day that they shut the M40, we're going to line the guns out on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that's that uh, obviously because of the, the West Wickham and Churchill connection. I use that forever, but that was also the the, the I worked um, for quite a long time in in Mid Wales, and in those days there were no red kites anywhere other than in the Eland Valley, and there were mm. about eight, either six or eight red kites still in the Eland Valley. So I saw red kites then. And then one day I was going to Heathrow, drove through, just got to the Stoke and Church cutting, and it was very early in the morning in the summer, looked out the window, and there was a red kite ab- above the M40 at the, that cutting. Mm. And I looked up and I thought, no, no, that can't be a red kite. There are no, the nearest red kites are sort of miles away in mid Wales. And that was when um, one of the Gettys had that estate just by Stoke and Church. And that was the first release site for red kites in the south of England. I wondered uh, which estate it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because I always, I, I call Stoke and Church, you know, red kite central. That, that's, yeah, I was, absolutely. I yeah. play the game of pigeons versus red kite 
counting yes. in my head as I'm driving along. Yeah. And yeah. I'll often get to 50 red kites and like 40 pigeons. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, on that sort of 15-minute yeah. stretch. Yeah. Um, it's just out of control though, isn't it? <laughs> yes, extraordinary. But I suppose, Mark, one of the other things that must make up part of your your working life is actually the planning out of drives because of the work you do in in uh, on on grouse moors, bringing grouse moors back. Um, it, does it take a special eye to look at a landscape and think that's the way to do that bit? Yeah, I mean, it, both ways. I mean, we we do a lot of low ground shoot work as well. Um, I mean, grouse are in some ways. They're 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 fascinating because um, in the main they they stick to patterns. So grouse, you can push grouse uphill. The grouse pushing them along the side of hill is very easy. That's where they're really comfortable at going. They really like to see heather where they are to where they're going to go to. If you try to take them off heather, they really don't like that. For, quite good reasons mm. so if you try try to drive grouse off a moor onto and you have the, the sort of butts or the stands right on the edge of moorland they don't want to go there because it's not moorland behind so they drive along left or right sides of a hill they'll push up a hill but they're very very hard to ever take down a hill they just don't like going from high to low there's the odd place where it works but in the main it doesn't so they're quite sort of probably you you quite often get it wrong to start with, but very quickly there's gets a pattern as to where the grouse will go there, and that starts. That's much the same in the main with low ground. Sometimes you think you know a drive should work. You should be able to take partridges. I remember um, we we got involved in a shoot right up in the, on the on the Yorkshire North Yorkshire coast, and that. They'd had a keeper there before who'd come from the West Country where the valleys were quite narrow and he, they just couldn't get the partridges to cross these valleys because they, they, um, up in Yorkshire, they were much, much wider, had mm. terrible east winds coming off the coast. Mm. And we then brought a, a local keeper who also, uh, he'd been a keeper very nearby, again with wide valleys, and he transformed the chute, whereas everybody had said, no, you can't take partridges that far across a valley. And he looked at it, he said, no, that's bloody rubbish, lad. Gosh, you can, I'll show you. And he did, <laughs> absolutely transformed it. Yeah, so so um, that is really interesting to see what works and what doesn't work. And quite often, you are surprised, either the ones that do work that you don't think will work very well, or those that you're absolutely certain are going to work and are going to be stunning, and then they're not. And, you know, but that's trial and error. You must have a shoot in mind that you think back as being, like, the one of the best success, success stories of your, sort of your involvement is there one that springs to mind that you can share and you think, God, I'm so pleased with sort of where that's gone? I, I, I think actually, I mean, it sounds trite, but lots of, of things that, you know, lots of drives and lots of shoots that you really, you've really enjoyed because they have either been transformed or they've just been a delight. And that, that probably the, the nicest thing has been who you work for. I mean, I, I, I think that's the, the great thing. And I, still do it now, sort of whatever it is, 50 years on, because I just really love the people that I work with. And that's either with the clients, the keepers, and it, the whole shoot day staff. And I think that's probably something that some people in shooting really 
have never got to grips with. You know, the shooting has been about shooting, and that's really the interest. Whereas the the great thing about shooting is that you've got this extraordinary place, often absolutely stunning, very beautiful. You've got some great sport. You've got lovely guns, you hope. But you've also got this tremendous collection of people who all contribute to the day. And and I think I think that if you don't appreciate that, you miss so much about shooting. And I think, you know, all the things that I look at now, that's what I sort of concentrate on. And I go back to places, and sometimes I go back to places that I first went to, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago or whatever it was. And then you see how it developed and how it's grown. I imagine... You've got involved with all sorts of estates, with lots of different types of owners and, and, and for all sorts of different reasons and justification on their part for wanting to do it. it slightly leading question this, but something George and I find when we're talking to people on the pod is like the passion and the excitement that runs through first and foremost out of everything they do. I can imagine that there are people out there where you just know from the moment you're going to meet them that they're going to end up having a special shooting estate underneath them because of everything that they love about it and that you're kind of working with that passion that then sort of you know shows itself in the end result yeah and and, and th- there are probably i'm not sure it's sad but it's a, it, it's i think it's true is there are a lot of people who enjoy shooting and there are a lot of people who have shoots who enjoy having shoots and there are a few who are absolutely just mad on it you know and, it, and, it, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and they're extraordinary i mean i've got i've got a client with with grouse shooting and you know he is still the guy that if he lived in truro would drive to inverness for a day's <laughs> grouse shooting and back again and you know go up there you know he's still like that and, and and shoots a lot and shoots grouse a lot but he's still aged sort of 50 or yeah must be 50 now he's still as keen as a sort of i was when i was 13 or 14 and that sort of thing that's so and good they're to great hear. because they're and they're, <laughs> they're great motivators as well but you also get it you know you get it in keepers i think if you want to do something well whatever it is you have to be really passionate about it if i i just think that you know that must be the same if you're a great chef if you do not have the passion i don't see how you could be a fantastic chef and if you go and look at you know keepers who are just passionate about the job they always operate at a level that's different to just the ones who are, you know yeah he's pretty good and but, excite- yeah. excitement's infectious as well isn't it if yeah, if the absolutely. the person running the shoot or who owns it is excited yeah. then that rubs yeah. off on their on their team and that rubs off on the people who are fortunate enough to be shooting on their place as well so that yeah. that that is such a key thing that, that everybody probably uh, certainly uh, in my experience people take their lead from the big boss yeah so uh, in, in that vein then and you definitely won't want to go near names here but you must have had some places that have gone wrong essentially for that reason just you know they got all the best intentions to you on paper but don't doesn't carry through probably because they're just not up for it enough I think that's yeah. I I think unfortunately we live in a society where often people think they should be doing things and it becomes a norm to do. And whilst that's you know, if they're clients and they pay you, that's obviously what we need to continue. Um, but it's it is not 
you, you don't have the same motivation as you do when you've got someone who's absolutely passionate about it. And sometimes those people, it goes in phases. You know, they, they shooting, they, they take up shooting, and then they they enjoy that. Then they get a shoot, and then after a time, they sort of either lose interest, don't want to shoot, or give up shooting, and then they move to something else. And quite often, you know, that happens. And then you still see the same person. So you still see someone who at 80 is still as passionate about shooting or fishing, you know, as as they are. I mean, I, I think that must be, you know, I'm not 80 yet, but I'm still, um, you know, I've been doing it. Um, I first went shooting with my dad when I was eight. Um, so 62 years later, I'm still doing it and I still love it. The other thing about having somebody in charge who's super passionate and super excited is I guess they're more prepared to spend the money when it needs to be spent or to take a chance on something exciting when the opportunity arises, given the choice between the safe bet that will be fine and the potentially risky one that could be amazing. They might be more inclined to go with the thing that makes it that bit more special because they have that inside them that makes them want to. Yeah, and definitely. If you, you know, if everything has to, um, if performance related is what you want, you certainly don't want to do to, to be involved in grass moors. You know, <laughs> you it may come very good, in which case mm-hmm. that's a bonus, but it could be very bad, and it could be very good one year, and it could be very bad the next year. You know, I mean. We would think now this year those moors, the, the the high wetter moors that have had a lot of grouse in the North Pennines this year, the worm burden's high. In some places, it's higher than I've ever seen before. Um, that doesn't look very good at all for next year. Now, if you're an owner um, who is used to that cycle, is used to the fact that it's you know it could be fantastic and it could be horrible. That's fine. If, however, you think that year after year I have a grass bore and it should perform and I should have my, you know, whatever it is, six or eight or ten guest days before I might let them, grass shooting is not for or running a grass bore is not for you. No, exactly. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask, actually, because I mentioned it at the start, your business has been credited with turning around some grouse moors and doing amazing things. Other than the passion and obviously the deep pockets, what are the things that, really make a grouse more just really get on its game and become sort of much talked about amongst the community as it were it's really interesting it it, it um i sort of got involved with it without understanding it um you know when i started and then gradually got involved and took my first lease on a more i think when i was um 20 well when i left sirencester took on a very, very scruffy, almost white, had almost no heather on it at all, grouse moor in the Peak District, and and then took on that, had that for eight years, and then had another lease on another one for 30-odd years, and then another one. And, um, and over the time, <laughs> you had to learn, even if you were not very bright, which I'm not, you had to learn quite a lot from those experiences, and particularly when you were playing with your own money. Well, and I think the thing... Grouse is, you have to have a passion to make it worthwhile because the economics are generally horrible. I mean, shooting is, game shooting is expensive and grouse shooting is incredibly expensive. So it's sort of, you know, it, it is not for the faint hearted. It also can't be measured, I think, in 
value for money. I, I, I just don't think you can say, you know, when, when you hear people say, oh, it's not worth 200 pounds a brace or whatever it may be, I think that if you if you correlate it with a cost, then it's not for you. You've gone I, wrong in the first place, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just it's just not for you. I, I mean, it's probably like me with a very, very good bottle of wine. You know, a mega expensive bottle of wine is completely wasted on me because I couldn't know, I couldn't tell unless someone told me that it was worth that money. Therefore, there's no point in me drinking that expensive wine. And I think if grouse shooting, if you correlate it to value for money, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, yes. Uh, interesting what, what, yeah what's made it i think worthwhile has been the, the you, if you have a grass moor and i learned this by myself you know but by, by virtue of my uh, employing my own keepers um was that your keepers are your managing directors and sometimes when you meet a sort of hill keeper you might not automatically correlate that with him or her with a managing director but in reality that is what your keeper is they're, they're the the managing director of that enterprise and in in all businesses the person running them is actually and, and in grass balls you know the owner thinks that he or she runs them or the agent thinks he or she runs them but actually in reality it's the keeper that runs them we yeah. can delude ourselves <laughs> but, but but that's the reality it, the key is that person you know you and it, it is in it, in business it's how good is that person how committed how passionate how hard working are they and to get the most out of a more in terms of enjoyment you will need a really awesome keeper and if you have a really awesome keeper the more will run you know you'll still have the highs and lows you'll still have the good grouses and the bad grouses but overall you'll the the grass it will perform pretty well and you will enjoy it much better as a result just as you would with you know, in any other format it's all about the people as ever yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 opportunity to now to call out some keepers that you think deserve some praise, <laughs> because <laughs> the, 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 the grouse keepers get a lot of chat, don't they? It, more so than than low ground keepers. It must be that I mean, I'm going down the wrong route, suggesting it could be a harder job, but but uh, but there's certainly amongst my friends of mine, grouse keepers get a lot of airtime for it's, some of the work they do. Yeah, it, it, it's I I think being a, a you should um, never um, and that again probably took me a bit of time I, I originally thought grass keepers you know grass keepers worked incredibly hard and actually low ground keepers had it easy and, and I don't have that view at all now that's complete rubbish um, the, the advantage of grouse is that they're completely wild and therefore you don't need to feed and water them and look after them in that way. That is not the case with pheasants and partridges. If you do not feed and water them and look after them, they don't survive or they wander off or whatever it is. So you've got a, you've got a massive commitment in both ways, but they're just different commitments. Many, yeah. many good grouse keepers that I've come across started off as pheasant and partridge keepers. And, and one of the great advantages that they had when they were young, they, they had to get used to routine, to rigorous self-discipline, which is a fantastic 
thing to start. You know, if you have, you've got to look after, you've got to feed your partridges, you've got to look after whether it's on the rearing field or in the release pen or in the incubator before that. You have this discipline, the self-discipline. That sets you up. If you learn that, that sets you up hellish well whatever you do and it really sets you up if you're then a grousekeeper you go on to a grouse ball and you have that self-discipline that self-motivation quite often if you start as a grousekeeper without and perhaps if you start in the wrong place the wrong moor under the wrong ad keeper you don't learn that and that i don't think it's something you can learn retrospectively i think you really need that at the outset that that self-discipline that's the grounding um, yeah yeah and and I've sort of met and and worked with and employed some awesome groundskeepers. I mean, you know, uh, Andrew Chadwick, who worked for me for thirty uh, as my own headkeeper for I think about thirty seven, thirty eight years or something. Um, he said the reason he managed to work and last as long with me is that he's deaf. Um, <laughs> uh, and I said, I did it because no one else would employ him for that length of time, and therefore it was an act of charity. So anyway, between <laughs> us, we, we obviously got on. Jeremy Wearmouth, now head keeper at, at uh, Gunnerside and has been for a long time. He was my head keeper at Narsdale, and I learned a phenomenal amount from him in a very, very quiet, very wry approach. Jeremy, awesome grousekeeper, and lots and lots of others, young and older. Phenomenal. I've been very privileged. Mm. And um, it's just occurred to me that we've spoken about this a bit on the, the podcast before. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, when it comes to grouse moors, the, there's a lot of controversy, which we won't go into, but a, there's a, an incredible amount of very important work that grouse keepers do from a conservation perspective. And we've touched on it on the podcast before that um, – uh, the, the conservation angle maybe doesn't get quite the same airtime as it does uh, on on lowland shoots, and we've talked about the hard work of people trying to run wild grey partridge shoots, and that seems to be a bit of a, a a bit of a movement that's slowly gathering pace. Can you see that uh, becoming something that that mere mortals will be able to access as a shooting experience, or do you think it will remain? The, the the world for, for for private individuals and private shoots i i, I would love it to i think is the statistic from the old ely game advisory that um we shot more partridges the last year than with pheasants in england in 1962 so it's not as long ago i mean you know i was actually around in 1962 you can't imagine that that was the case and bear in mind that we there was almost no partridge releasing in the 60s uh, that that's mad isn't it the, the significant change that's caused that level of decline well it, my, my my father was in uh was a uh, sort of uh a businessman who shot he was in a syndicate two syndicates in north nottinghamshire sort of south yorkshire uh, area and they're in sort of duke, what they call the dukeries, near works up that sort of area. And uh, we would uh, regularly, when I first went with him, we would shoot sort of 40 to 60 brace of wild partridges, wild greys uh, in those days. And, and the low ground keeper, you know, keep it in many ways like a, a grouse moor mm. with um, fen traps, 
Um, that was pre Larson's to start with, but uh, Killing Crows and Magpies was, you know, that was a, a real uh, important part because of the wild uh, uh, greys. Um, I remember, I can't remember how old I was, but I think I was, I'd, it was be 13 or 14, and the keeper on both, they had two keepers on these two shoots. Uh, sorry, one keeper on each of the two shoots, and they—I remember where they the first year they reared and released a thousand pheasants. Until then, the the, the dominant sport was wild grey partridges, mm. and that was on perfectly normal farmland, uh, of which you know much of the country had greys. I mean, in in '76, when I was my last year at Science Test, if you drove the Fosway over the top of the Cotswolds, I remember seeing straw bales out there. Uh, in some of those valleys um, and Doversford and that sort of area. And that was shooting wild greys in, in 75 and 76. And with your land agent hat on briefly, do you see that, that changes in agricultural subsidies and, and that sort of thing might present more of an opportunity for people who are interested in trying to do that sort of thing? Um, do you think you'll see more people doing that or do you think it's not quite the right sort of subsidy to, to make it possible? I don't. I think some of them are. In fact, yes, that change is definitely, definitely helping. The big problem is that predator control is absolutely essential. If you want to have a shootable surplus, you have got to have predator control. And you know, until nationally we understand it and accept that, we will never have a shootable surplus, and and will continue to have biodiversity loss. And and you know, we we can. You know, um, having good quantities of a wide range of birds is essential, and predator control is absolutely essential. It, it made me laugh on Monday. I read an, uh, an article Francis Fulford wrote on Scribehound, and he called the RSPB the they should be called the RSPP, the Royal Society for the, for the Protection of Predators, because that's how wrong <laughs> they've gone. <laughs> and I'd I'd like to plug a um, another article on Scribehound on exactly this topic, which suggests that there should be government subsidies for predator control yeah i, I mean when we we talk about the opportunities for people shooting and the problem is to, to have good predator control on reasonable acreages on the low ground you've got to employ keepers and, and a keeper is is an expensive entity so you're automatically you know it, you're not going to get the return that you're going to get from a rearing uh uh program of, of pheasants or partridges so you've got to be passionate and if you look at all the people who are actually have sort of really focused on wild partridges one they've had to have the money and two they've got to be absolutely focused and and you know passionate about having a wild partridge shoot and, and you know what 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 better than actually having a wild partridge i mean to, to be you know in the low ground lowlands of, of england uh, or scotland and actually having sort of coveys of wild greys burst over the top of her head. I mean, I, I think that would be unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I got so excited when we had George Ponsonby on. We had Tarquin followed by George Ponsonby, and we were talking about various different things. And after it, I was like looking at my one-acre field, just working out yeah. how we could just make this <laughs> just amazing for conservation. And just, anyway, um, just one point on that. So because predator control is kind of, at a national level, so out of control. Do you think the days of the sort of bag sizes, not just, I mean, 
Gray's slightly different because of the reasons we just mentioned, but certainly on grouse, do you think those days are sort of 10 years ago and the climate differences that we're now experiencing, which are causing such peaks and troughs on years, do you think the sort of consistency that we used to have is gone? Do you think when it's probably not going to be quite the same again? Do you think we, yeah. I mean, we're, we're battling with a lot of different stuff now, aren't we? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I think that, um, uh, I, I think we've had a, a, a a very good time with with grouse, which been aided by um, some modern techniques, um, some very good motivated owners who put a lot of money into their estates, their moorland estates, um, some very very good keepers and, and high quality keepering. Do I think that's going to continue? I, I think we'll still have you know good quantities of grouse, but I suspect that probably some of the peaks have exactly that and we won't replicate them again it's definitely getting harder by virtue of the fact i mean one of the biggest ones we've got is the restriction of um or the prevention of burning on deep peat um most of the very good grouse moors are on deep peat not all of them but deep peat is a is a it has a fantastic ability to grow some very very good heather with a high um uh, feed content it also produces very good insect hacks which are essential for the first mm, week yeah. of, of young grass life um you know the the the, the banning of, of of burning on deep peat has created all sorts of problems i mean it was understandable i mean lots of people get very excited about it it was understandable how it gained momentum very quickly so we were i we were participants in schemes where we were paid esa schemes by the government to burn 10 percent of your heather a year and within 10 years we were then banned from burning heather on deep peat so Quite interesting to see. Uh, actually, probably it was 14 years, I think, probably different. But you're actually, so you had these ESA schemes where you were paid and you had to. And at the end of the year, we, we were monitored um, by the government's department as to whether we'd actually <laughs> burnt our 10%. And then 14 years later, you'd have, you'd have been in court if you actually burnt Heather on TV. Oh, that's absolutely mental. It's presumably the, the 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 real place we should be is in the middle of that somewhere. I mean, the idea that government's helping to pay. I mean, I can I can see sort of why they started to do that. I definitely can't see why they banned it. Should, should the middle ground have been where we ended up? Yeah, we we we. The, the problem is we we are a, a very developed nation. We have fantastic communications. We see wildfires throughout the world. And we, at Natural England in, in England, much more so than, than uh, what was Nature Scott or, uh, uh, in Scotland, um, uh, are convinced that burning um, is not essential uh, for biomass control. All the practitioners, there's no one who's involved in habitat management and particularly heather management on moorland who does not think that controlling the amount of burnable combustible biomass is essential and it is absolutely essential now we've done it for 150 years by burning organized burning and before that by just sporadic burning now it it, it doesn't really matter if there was another better way of doing it that would be one thing but the idea that we are now not burning and not controlling what is there and and 
once it catches fire in a wildfire, stopping these wildfires is absolutely impossible. I mean, the, the heat at the face of a wildfire is extraordinary. And you're doing it in areas where you're bloody hard to get machinery there. Very, you know, it's not terribly important for the fire brigade because mostly there's not going to be a loss of life. But our problem is that if we do not, we, we sort of we watch television, we see the fires in California, in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy, in everywhere, and yet we don't, for some reason, think that we can have wildfires, or we didn't think we could have wildfires in England. Then, of course, we had the 2020 two wildfires and that you know but those were only following what we've had before but for some reason government and natural england didn't think that that was going to happen in our climate but as we get these drier longer drier summers that's going to become an increasing problem and wildfires on moorland and elsewhere are going to be a major major issue and if we're not careful will lead to loss of life in england so infuriating Mm. So um, Ian Coghill and Owen Williams have written some brilliant stuff on this on Scribehound. Ian certainly got it down to a T. I mean, I just can't understand how it's even a debate. It's not science anymore, is it? It's something else uh, and very odd. No, I think the the problem is that burning on Heather Moorland is a direct connection with grouse shooting. And the problem is, if it wasn't, I think we'd still be burning on deep peat. Yeah, agree. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sad. Right. Well, I was well. going to say, so speaking of natural disasters, Mark, um, <laughs> let's uh, let's look into the future and imagine that the extinction-level event asteroid is striking the Earth in a few days' time. Your affairs are in order. Your loved ones and your enemies have been reconciled. Your dogs have been fed and the tomatoes have been watered. How does your last day shooting begin? Um, my last day shooting uh, would be, perhaps not surprisingly, it would be grass shooting. It would be with old friends, definitely. It would be uh, possibly in the Peak District, where I was born and brought up and, and shot my first grass and shot reasonable. Well, other people shot lots of grass, but I watched them shoot them. Um, uh, And it would probably be not, it would be a downwind day. It would be October, early October. So late September, early October. Um, As I've got older, I've noticed the cold. So sort of late October, November days, (laughs) standing in a moor with a sort of really horrible east wind probably aren't quite as attractive oh, but this this is desert island shooting so we can have a late october day oh. and make it slightly warmer for you in which case i, I, I don't mind how late it is um <laughs> uh i would that would be absolutely awesome and, and and sort of five downwind drives and for once me shooting properly you know, <laughs> you know what, the most really I, I many many years ago i i was joint owner of of uh, the West Wickham, the Churchill shooting ground, and I also owned, very surprisingly, um, a, a health club. And, and uh, uh, um, my then partner uh, said to me, he, said, he looked at me one day uh, after we'd been shooting, he said, uh, he said, why is it, Mark, that 
you're the least fit person I know that owns a health club <laughs> and the worst shot who owns a shooting ground. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a, that's a gravestone I think that's piece. an accolade, <laughs> yeah. That's definitely a gravestone piece. Yeah, so, so the problem is it was very hurtful, but it was also very accurate. But what I'd like to do on this dream day, I want to be shooting like a god. You know, I want two, two shots in front, two grouse, two shots behind, turning, two grouse. Yeah. absolutely lovely so 100 percent strike rate on your perfect day absolutely nothing less please well, why nice. not can you imagine <laughs> what would the conversation be like after amongst your mates if that happened <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, what a thing that not perhaps many people have seen is, is uh um thinking about late grass days i remember um uh we, we had an american friend over um in uh early December uh, in Northumberland. And he said, uh, Mark, he said, um, do you ever shoot grouse this late? And I said, uh, well, yes, we, we quite often have a bit of mixed shooting. We might shoot a few grouse and then shoot pheasants and some woodcock and, and, and things there. And um, we then, for him, because he's never done it, we, we then did a small grouse drive. And we got up in the morning and it had been snowing overnight and it was still snowing. And uh, so we, we, and I thought, oh, we, we, he's come all the way and he wanted to, to see this. So we did this small grouse drive. Well, the problem was everything was white except for the people standing in the butts. So, <laughs> so far as the grouse were concerned, and everybody was then in a green coat or a tweed coat, brown or green. As soon as they moved their arms, it was the only thing that wasn't white <laughs> yeah. on the whole landscape. But what was extraordinary was when the snow, we then had a, a, a snowstorm came during the drive. And to see grouse get completely disorganized, disorientated, and actually start to go up like ducks. Oh, my goodness. goodness. Absolutely That's... extraordinary. They, they completely got lost in the snow when they were coming, flying through the snow, and then just sort of went up and up to try and presumably find um, where there wasn't snow. Anyway, it was a disaster. So my my perfect late season grass day would not have would not be in a snowstorm. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Um, and yeah. So then, when and the day's over, heading to the local pub, or how does it? How does yeah, you, can, you can pick a pub. It could be cool. We can transport a pub in Cornwall up to this grouse moor if you like. Is there <laughs> is there a particular pub that you want to finish up in? I I. There have been so many good shooting pubs, um, but the problem is that after a time they, they change owner and then the shooting bit goes out, don't they? And so you you sometimes yeah. go back many years later after one that you remember being fantastic and actually you go there and you realise that it's not a good place <laughs> now for shooting. But there were some lovely pubs in the North York's Moors and, and places like that. And yeah, I, yeah, that would be a great way to finish the day. Log fire, lots to drink, not driving. And I think yeah. probably with shooting, my perfect day would would not have me getting in the car, going anywhere after the day. Ah. I think that probably spoils quite a lot of shoot days, doesn't it? Yes. So you're a fan of the night before and the night after. Yeah. That So that the the back-to-back-to-back scenario we we've been chatting through on this pod is the the saturday sunday break monday shoot day yeah uh, being the ultimate uh rather than sort of two back, days back on to work drop. on wednesday <laughs> 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 um yeah yeah i agree 
uh, kick feet up after the day, reminisce on the fact that you didn't miss a single grouse all day on the perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so people would say, well, obviously, you're such a great shot because you do own a shooting ground, you know, so rather than you're such a terrible shot and you own a shooting ground. Yeah, or, or that you'd become a great shot after you finished owning the shooting ground. Yeah, so. probably. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Lovely. Well, Mark, thank you ever so much for joining us. I know you've got to get away, so I think we'll uh, wrap it up there. Great pleasure. Thank you very awesome. much. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thank you. Bye. As per usual, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your dilemmas for us to resolve or by sending us your unpopular opinions or sharing your forgotten drives with us. Just send us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read it out in the next episode, we will send you some garters. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time, but until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.